0: We're going to be in Luke chapter 13. The last thing we covered last Sunday was basically repentance. Jesus spoke about repentance and also the bearing of fruit. Today we're going to move through a few uh, blocks of scripture, one being the crippled woman, two complementary parables, the mustard seed and the leaven, the way into the kingdom, and also the lament over Jerusalem. And we'll see through all these the kingdom road that narrow, difficult road that few find and the distractions that come with not finding it. A little bit of a background. This is still here at this point of scripture. It's still a few months out prior to the crucifixion. Except for the parables of the mustard seed and the leaven, all of chapter 13 is unique to Luke's gospel. It's not repeated in any of the other three gospels. Geographically, uh, Jesus is in his what's called the Perean ministry, and this is uh, a part of his ministry just before the end, just before he makes his way into Jerusalem and he's ultimately crucified. Now, Perea is, if you're familiar with the geography, is somewhat northeast of the Dead Sea in what's known today as modern-day Jordan. and It's actually North Jordan by the capital of Amman, Jordan. The interesting thing is that Perea and Galilee were under Herod Antipas's purview. And by this time, Jerusalem was under Pontius Pilate. And we'll see that come into play later. Also, keeping in mind, I like to, you know, before I go into a book, I like to know basically what the book is about, why it was written, who it was written to. Keeping in mind through all this, there's a lot of physical maladies we see in Luke's gospel. Remember, Luke is a physician. And he's also speaking to a Greek audience that idolizes humanity. They were the old humanists, in a sense. So jumping in, Verse 10. It says, Now he was teaching in one of the synagogues on the Sabbath, and behold, there was a woman who had a spirit of infirmity 18 years, and was bent over and could in no way raise herself up. We find Jesus teaching again on the Sabbath in a synagogue. As much as the religious system started at this point to despise him for various reasons, The community welcomed him into their synagogues. The rule was, after the destruction of the temple in 586 BC, they had no place to worship. So, and I've said this before, if there was ten Jewish men in the in the uh, community, they could start their own synagogue. So it was a community plant. These little synagogues, these little houses of worship. But again, we're introduced to another person with another problem, confronting or coming to Jesus. What did she have? And let's just go a little bit, and I like to do this with some of the different ailments. Was it some type of spondylopathy, which is just a fancy word for a degenerative spinal spinal disease? Could have been scoliosis, kyphosis, rickets. Some of you have heard these terms. Any type of spondylitic or ankylitic condition in this woman's spine. Whatever it was, she couldn't stand up. And why do I throw these terms at you? Well, to prove to you how great my Lord is. Because when you see how he heals her, It's going to blow you away, based on the knowledge of the spine, how he could do this like that. She's fine. And also, 2,000 years later, with all the medical advances that we have, uh, spinal surgery is still a challenge. If you go to a surgeon and you have a problem, a good surgeon won't be quick to operate because I know people who have had failed back surgeries, and they're far worse than their original condition. So a good surgeon, even with all the percutaneous discectomies and the laser surgery and all that stuff, they still will caution you about surgery. There was a man, because I used to live in East Brunswick, there was a man I would see often, an elderly man in South River, uh, a town next to me, who would walk up and down Main Street in South River. And he was hunched over. So in my mind, I could picture this woman, because he was pretty much like this, bent over, and he would look forward, and that's how he walked up and down the street. And all I could say is, oh, Lord, that poor man, and pray for him. Uh, so I can see this woman in this, in this story here. Now, verse 12 It says this, But when Jesus saw her, he called her to him and said to her, Woman, you are loosed from your infirmity. By this time, Jesus had been rebuked on many occasions for healing on the Sabbath, and no doubt that this was in the back of his mind. (laughs) He's going to go heal her, and here it comes. He's going to get it, right? But his compassion outweighed his concern for his own safety. Let me repeat that. His compassion outweighed his concern for his own safety. If you saw the man, uh, or you think about this woman, or saw the man that I saw in South River, you couldn't help but to have your heart being tugged on. You see a certain person bound in a condition like that, and you have compassion for them. And if your heart doesn't ache for the afflicted, there's something missing in your walk. Because we're supposed to emulate Christ, and we're supposed to also emulate his heart. He had compassion. As Christians, true Christians, we also need to have compassion for people. But his compassion and duty out uh, duty to act outweighed his concern again for himself. Have you ever been in that position? Whether maybe you've been in a public place or a hospital or somewhere that it's not a church, you know, you're not surrounded by Christians. And, you know, God is telling you to approach a person just to either just pray with them or talk to them or just sit with them. But you feel it's not your place. Or if you say something, you start praying. Somebody's going to tell you to stop and you have that battle. How many of you have had that? It's happened to me. And then the event comes and goes, and you know it was an opportunity from the Lord, and you say, oh, Lord, I should have... Why was I afraid? Why was I afraid of what people would think? I should have just done it, because he's called me to do it, right? So this is the the example that our Lord sets for us. In verse 13, it says, And he laid his hands on her, and immediately she was made straight and glorified God. Now, this is an amazing miracle. I actually did a little research on, as you could tell, you know, afflictions of the spine. If you, if you know the spine, you have your vertebrae, which are like uh, circular bones, so cylindrical bones, and between each vertebrae is a disc, which is like fibrous tissue with a spongy nuclear pulposa in the center. And what happens is these discs act as a shock absorber, and, and God puts the spine in a certain curvature because it's a perfect spring. If it was perfectly straight, it wouldn't take the shock as well. And it's amazing because we've designed leaf springs and coil springs on a car and different springs based on the human spine. It's an amazing design that God had. And if that's not enough, in the back of every vertebra vertebra is uh, little holes that God has drilled, drilled one vertically and some horizontally. And through these holes, when the the vertebrae are stacked, what happens is your spinal cord runs through the holes. And then they run through the side holes. And it's really... Any of those, any of you who have hot rodded, I know some of you back there, uh, when you do engines uh, rebuilding, there's there's, very small tolerances, there's thousandths of an inch. Well, God made this whole system with small tolerances for the nerves, right? And I talked to my chiropractor, he said, if a woman had that condition and you tried to force her to straighten up and put her in a brace, you could paralyze her, Okay. So this is an amazing feat for Jesus to just put his hands on her. All of a sudden, she straightens up. The whole thing, the whole problem with the spine has just fixed itself. So I just love to to go into the human body and just show how amazing our Lord is. Verse 14, it says that, But the ruler of the synagogue answered with indignation, because Jesus had healed on the Sabbath. And he said to the crowd, There are six, six days on which men ought to work. Therefore, come and be healed on them, and not on the Sabbath day. Then the Lord answered him and said, Hypocrite, does not each one of you on the Sabbath loose his ox or his donkey from the stall and lead it away to water it? So ought not this woman, being the daughter of Abraham, whom Satan has bound, think of it, for 18 years be loosed from this bond on the Sabbath? Hypocrisy. These people would show mercy to a, a donkey or an ox, and in other scriptures it says that if... Um, if one of your animals falls into a pit on the Sabbath, wouldn't you help that animal out so it wouldn't you know, stay there with a broken leg or bleed to death or starve to death? Uh, he, he, you know, he exposes their hip- hypocrisy many ways. So Jesus is showing them, look, you know, this is a, a woman, this is a human being, and you would take care of your animal, but you're just going to let her sit here with this affliction? Jesus is showing that their pretentious worship of God was in vain. Notice also that this synagogue ruler didn't have the the courage to face Jesus, Jesus did it. Instead of rebuking Jesus, he actually spoke to the congregation and rebuked them for, I guess, agreeing with it, some of them. So a lot of hypocrisy here. You ever meet, and and as people use religion as an excuse to say, well, I, I tithe, you know, I give my money to the church. I do, I say my prayers. I do what I'm supposed to do. I go to church on Sunday and they're downright nasty. It's almost like if religion can help them to get right before God, but they're totally not obligated to deal with their fellow human beings. Could be snooty, snotty, stuffy, any of those things, unfriendly, that's just not godly. And Jesus says that she was Satan bound. What special insight did he have into her affliction? Was this a result of her condition of just general sin? Or was it she involved in some godless practice? Or was it an affliction where Job or where Satan like, attacked Job and he asked to, to afflict Job and he needed God's permission? Was it that type of affliction? Or was it just that Satan is, just, is the author of evil, including rebellion and sin that leads to these afflictions? Remember, Satan introduced the, uh, the different voice in the Garden of Eden to Adam and Eve and get them to change, not listening to God's voice anymore, but listening to another voice came on the scene. And what they did was they rebelled against him They chose to sin. And from that point on, death entered the world, you know, and all types of afflictions. So either way, Jesus thought it was best instead of waiting another day. It was appropriate to lose her on the day of worship. Verse 17. And when he said these things, all his adversaries were put to shame and all the multitude rejoiced for all the glorious things that were done by him. Everywhere Jesus went, he polarized the community. You hear that word a lot lately. That's the buzzword. A certain person is a a polarizing figure. Well, that's not always a bad thing. See, the adversaries were the people there that wanted to catch Jesus and oppose him. And their hearts were hard. Then you had the multitudes who rejoiced in what he had done. Polarization. If you polarize people because you're mean and you lack social skills, that's not a good thing. But if you polarize people because you stand on the word of God, that is a good thing. When we talk about polarization, we need to define our terms. The crippled woman wasn't the only one bound that day. The synagogue ruler and his supporters were so bound by tradition that it stifled compassion and love for others. The woman was freed, and the religious leaders remained bound to this dead religion, this dead tradition that led them to the wide road that led to destruction. So the first step on the kingdom road is not to be knocked off of it by dead traditions. Never allow religion or a cloistered communities to stop your love from the outside. I had had a pretty busy week this week. I had last Sunday service, this Sunday service. I had a funeral to do Thursday. I had a Bible study to do Wednesday. And I also have another job. (laughs) So I had to find time to do everything. So Wednesday night after the Bible study, I was driving home. And I just wanted to go home and see my wife and my son. And it was dark. It was late. And there was a car on the side of the road with the four way flashers. And usually, you know, I'm pretty, you know, I'm a police officer and I'm concerned about safety. If, it, if it's a woman, I'll stay by and I'll help her till the cops come. My rule is well, if it's a guy, he looks able bodied. He can figure it out on his own, right? It's just kind of a silly rule that I have, right? But it's like I passed him up and he's got, he's got a gas can, and, you know, his car's not starting. And I'm, and I'm thinking a few things. Well, you know, I did my job, I did the Bible study, I can go home, right? did my my job right I also thought well he should have put more gas in his car (laughs) a lot of thoughts went through my head but there was one thought one voice that said to me turn around and go help him and I'm as I'm driving I'm like well I'm already two miles away you know I'm going away it's funny how you argue with God we're having an argument in the car a mild one (laughs) and of course he always wins I ended up making a u-turn so I go and I helped the guy out but it was cool it was a good opportunity uh, but it's just funny how you, you, you get into this mindset, well, I do enough good things, I don't have to help that guy on the side of the road. And again, if you're a woman, I certainly wouldn't, I wouldn't suggest it because there's danger issues. But, uh, you know, God's going to ask us to do things. You know, he's going to ask us to show compassion. And the question is, do we listen to his voice or do we listen to our own voice? In the next two parables that we're going to cover, these parables are found in other scriptures. This is the insert here where Matthew also speaks about the uh, leaven and the mustard seed, but because of chronological terminology such as then and then linked by the word and, the conjunction, I believe these two parables are linked with what Jesus was just speaking about. I believe that these two parables have everything to do with what Jesus talked about, about healing this woman. Um, now, people take antithetical positions on these. You know, There's a wide variety of positions people take on these two parables. So what I'll do is I'll give you... Uh, Both of them have a good basis in Scripture. I'll give you both of them, and then I'll tell you what I think. Uh, Verse 18. It says, Then he said, What is the kingdom of God like, and to what shall I compare it? It is like a mustard seed, which a man took and put in his garden, and it grew and became a large tree, and the birds of the air nested in its branches. Now, birds in Scripture, of course, your parable links the The uh, familiar with the unfamiliar. He helps you to understand the spiritual realm based on the physical realm. It's just the link that Jesus uses. But birds in scripture have a negative allegorical meaning in scripture. So this representation of the kingdom of heaven is that the growth of of the kingdom of heaven is an aberration and it becomes home for evil. Unnatural growth and it becomes something bad. On the other hand, we saw in Luke 12 that Jesus said even God provides for the unclean ravens. He cares for them, right? So, the, so wouldn't he care much more for you? And this could represent the kingdom of heaven's growth has such a great impact that it provides shelter and inclusiveness so as to include even the unclean Gentiles. You could look at the birds as, yeah, well, they're unclean. They have a negative allegorical meaning. However, uh, the church grows to such an extent that even the Gentiles are housed in that In that growth. And largely, what has the church become today? Mostly Gentiles, right? But some things will be enigmatic to us or a puzzle until Jesus returns. And it also appears that Jesus spoke uh, with concurrent paradoxes. And what I mean by that is, he says, He who is not with me is against me. And he said, He who is not against me is for us, right? And we explain contextually that they're not contradictory, but in, in In context, they both mean something specific. So I may be taking the coward's way out here, but I think both views have merit. But I will uh, lean further to one side than the other. Christianity in the church age has grown exponentially since the time of Christ and has become a haven for evil and satanic doctrine. Shouldn't surprise us. How many churches anymore are teaching the word of God? You know, they're introducing all kinds of weird things into the church. And, uh, you know, satanic doctrine is subtle. It's not, you know, no, no one's going to come up here and try to frighten you. It, satanic doctrine is meant to be a subtle, uh, you know, poisoning of the church. So in a sense, that's true. But then again, on the other hand, Jesus told his disciples that they, the church, right, would do greater things than Jesus himself. Not that they're better than Jesus, but in scope and effect, that Greek word means. Because he goes to be with the Father. John 14:12 tells us that. So the growth of Christianity with the disciples and with the church as of after Jesus' departure is an aggregate growth, right? It's a sum total. Now, especially to less developed countries, uh, they, their improvement is marked by, uh, is more, you could see a, a big change based on missionary work over there. Missionaries do for communities in other countries what corrupt governments don't. I think about Mexico. I know a lot of people who were uh, missionaries to Mexico. And there's a, a soft big bigotry, if, if you will, against the Tricky Indians, the indigenous peoples to the Mexican country. The government does nothing to help them. You know, they don't, they don't really care. But a lot of our missionaries help the Tricky Indians. They're indigenous peoples to that area, right? So missionaries, by and large, have done great things with church money, with American money, to help these less developed countries. Now, contextually, let me read this again. Let me go back to verse 17. It says, and when he, Jesus, said these things, all his adversaries were put to shame and all the multitude rejoiced for all the glorious things that were done by him. So this, this growth of this new sect of Judaism, if you will, Christianity, was a pure way to worship God. And it would take the ancient world by storm and growth in such a way that would make positive changes in the world. So the, so the tree here, or the, the mustard seed, was a picture of outward growth. Now we're going to go into the leaven which is more of an inward growth. Same principle. Verse 20. And again, he said, To what shall I like in the kingdom of God? It is like leaven, which a woman took and hid in three measures of meal till it was all leavened. Same principle. On the one hand, leaven has been seen in the Old Testament as a type of sin because it can spread and infect and destroy. But the converse can also be true. Why is it so hard to believe that the power of God, right, and his goodness should be equally as powerful as as the forces of darkness, and I believe more so powerful regarding changed lives, right? So both these leaven, if you look at leaven, it's really tiny, you can barely see it. There's got to be a lot of it in your hand to really behold it. Uh, if you look at a mustard seed, it's very tiny, one of the smallest of seeds. So in in, in size, these two things are nothing to behold. but at the start, but their power of growth is life-changing. Now, contextually, Jesus got done trying to turn the hearts of the people away from their dead traditions and get them to pure worship of God. And it would seem here, in a sense, that the leaven in this dough was spreading, just like he was talking about. You can't stop this new teaching about the truth of God from permeating hearts in the ancient Roman world, regardless of opposition and persecution. Look at the history of the church. Look at, look at Acts. Look at the uh, history after Acts. As much as these, these crazy emperors would come and try to destroy Christianity, uh, it spread in people's hearts. It was contagious. It was infectious. And no matter how much they killed the Christians, Christianity was growing, and they didn't understand how to stop it because they couldn't. Verse 22 And he went through the cities and villages, teaching and journeying toward Jerusalem. Then one said to him, Lord, are there few who are saved? And he said to them, Strive to enter through the narrow gate, for many, I say to you, will seek to enter and will not be able. When once the master of the house has risen up and shut the door, and you begin to stand outside and knock at the door, saying, Lord, Lord, open for us, and he will answer and say to you, I do not know you, where are you from? Then you will begin to say, We ate and drank in your presence, and you taught in our streets. But he will say, I tell you, I do not know you, where are you from? Depart from me all you workers of iniquity. There will be weeping and gnashing of teeth when you see Abraham and Isaac and Jacob and all the prophets in the kingdom of God and you yourselves thrust out. Then will come from the east and the west and the north and the south and sit down in the kingdom of God. And indeed there are last there there are last who will be first and there are first who will be last. So this was an interesting question that the person asked Jesus. Now, was it an observation that this guy was kind of sitting on the sidelines and watching Jesus teach. He's kind of off to the side. He's watching the people come forward, get a free meal, get a free healing. You know, he's watching this whole, this whole dynamics to what Jesus is teaching, right? Was it a question prompted by observation of largely disingenuineness? Did he look at these people and say, you know, they're just here to use Jesus? And we know in the scripture that some, many people did do that, but he still loved them and accepted them. It's a good question that he asked. And you know what? There's a sobering response to that. In verse twenty-four, it's like, don't ponder the question about others, Jesus says, apply it to yourself. I bet he didn't expect that answer from Jesus. You know, Jesus, philosophical question. Let's talk doctrine. You know, are there a few people who get saved? And Jesus didn't answer the question. He said, But what about you? You know, right? And that's what Jesus did. Apply it to yourself. We always want to ponder stuff. I knew a guy who was always Pondering deep theological issues, and you know, he would just bring stuff up to argue with you, and he would debate, and he had a good mind. Debate and debate and debate, but his marriage was falling apart. God wants us to apply the basic principles of life. Of, excuse me. He wants us to apply the basic principles of God's word and apply it to our life. Love your wife. Love your children. Live as a Christian. These we can debate. Calvinism versus Arminianism, or amillennial, millennial, pre-trib, post-trib, mid-trib, and you could do it out of fun, but you know what? Take the basic principles of God's word and apply it to your own life. That's what this is for. And the narrow gate, the narrow road of salvation, why is it narrow? Well, this is important that I want you to get, not that the rest of the service isn't, but I think the narrowness is not on God's part. I really don't. I think the narrowness is on our part, and what do I mean by that? In my own life, I resisted and resisted and resisted. It is a, it's, it's a testimony to the grace of God and it's a miracle that I'm even here today because God was so patient with me and so long-suffering. And eventually, you know, I, I did the smart thing. It took me a long time, but the question is, what keeps us out? What keeps us off the narrow road? Let, what keeps us out of the gate? Is it God? No. One of the things is pride. People say, well, that's too easy. You know, I give money to the church. I do good deeds. I do all this stuff. And you're telling me all I have to do is believe, repent of my sins, believe Jesus died for me on the cross 2,000 years ago. His blood was an atonement for me, and I'm good. Yeah, that's all you have to do. That's too easy. I'd rather, I want to work for my salvation. So pride is the first thing that keeps us off. The second thing is the cares of this world, distractions, stuff, you know, um, I guess it's, it's in vogue for the Christian community to, 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 to assail Hollywood. Now, you know, the relationships are not good. Uh, there's drug use. It, it, there's a trend now. They're all getting arrested for DWI. You see that in the paper lately. But you know what? We shouldn't, we should actually have pity on them. We should pray for them. Because they think that they're in a good place. They think that uh, if they make a trip to, to Africa or a country here and there and give some money, that they're okay. But they're not okay. We need to pray for them. They're distracted by the cares of this world. So too, too many times in Christianity, we vilify groups of people. But you know what? We should do more to work to love towards these people, right? False sense of security. Well, you know, I, I grew up in, in the Christian community. You know, I grew up in this culture. I grew up in the church. I'm a card-carrying, denominational, whatever. I'm going to get into the kingdom of heaven. Wrong. <laughs> that's not, that's not what, what gets you entrance into the kingdom of heaven. And our own wills, our own stubbornness keeps us out of the kingdom of heaven, keeps us off the uh, narrow road. Did you ever see a person take an opposite view just because you took a certain view? If you said, it's black. No, 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 no. I could see white as clear as day. If you could say, it's raining out. No, no, it's a gorgeous day out there. It's like certain people, they're fine until you take a position on something. Then they want to take the opposite position. Well, it's the same way with God. God's like, well, this is the way this is the prescription to get into the kingdom of heaven. Well, that's unfair. Well, that's narrow minded. Well, that's this. Well, that's that. And you have all these reasons for why you have to take that opposite view than the one that God has given you. Right. So this is what keeps us off the path. I I, I love my God. He's a good God. And I'll tell you what, I'll take the blame for messing my life up before I put the blame on him. And that's the way our attitude should be. It's not him. It's us. We're the we're the one with the problem lies. Because on God's end, take a concordance and start looking up the word choose. Choose this day whom you will serve. You know, choose God. How many times is choose in the Bible? Believe. Repent and be saved. Receive. Call upon the name of the Lord. Come. Come to me. Right? Take a concordance and look at all the, the, the portions of Scripture where these words exist. And you tell me how many times God has to call us and call us and call us you know, for us to come to him and we just can be stubborn and prideful. Does it mean that? Uh, you know, I believe that. That again, it's, it's our problem, because why would God say all these things and ask us to come to Him if He wouldn't, if He would reject us? It reminds. It would be a contradictory God, and it would be a cruel joke. It's like your child is hungry, very hungry, and you've got food in your hand, and they go to take it, and you go ha, and you put it behind your back, and you keep doing it. And you keep doing it. It's a cruel joke you play on the child and you never give it to him. That's not the way our God operates. He asks us to come to him. He asks us to repent and believe and be saved because that's what he wants us to do. Verse 25. He says, you know, he speaks about when the master of the house has risen up and shut the door and you begin to stand outside and knock at the door saying, Lord, Lord, open for us. And he will answer and say to you, I do not know you. Where are you from? The age of grace, which we are currently in, has run out. Now, let me read a scripture to you and explain what I'm talking about. Turn your Bibles to Revelation 6, 9 through 11. Revelation 6, 9 through 11. This is during the Great Tribulation. The fifth seal is being opened where God is pouring out his wrath on the world. And everybody in it. And it says, When he opened the fifth seal, I saw under the altar the souls of those who had been slain for the word of God and for the testimony which they held. And they cried with a loud voice, saying, How long, O Lord, holy and true, until you judge and avenge our blood on those who dwell on the earth? Well, that's curious, because when Jesus died on the cross, he said to the ones who assailed him and the ones who put him there, Lord, don't hold this sin to their account. And then Stephen, the first Christian martyr, followed in his Lord's footsteps and said, as they were stoning him, these nasty, wicked people, they were killing him. And in the process of him being murdered, he said, Lord, don't hold this to their account. Well, there's a change here. These people have been martyred and they're looking for vengeance. How long, oh Lord? We can't wait till you avenge these people, right? That's pretty interesting because the age of grace has run out. God is long suffering, but not forever. Uh, I think of the five wise virgins versus the five foolish virgins. virgins. You can look it up in uh, Matthew 25, same thing. You know, they, eventually the door was shut and they couldn't get in anymore. Right. Once the door is shut, it's too late. And in the great tribulation, the wrath of God will be poured out. And this is where people get confused. See, most of, or pretty much all of his human history, except for certain instances, Satan has been the author of judgment, punishment, all that other kind of stuff there's going to be a change in human history during the time of Revelation where that's going to change now. God's wrath will be poured out on the earth, okay? That's why I don't believe we'll be here because uh, if if you study types in the Bible, whether it was the Passover or Sodom and Gomorrah or the flood, God always removed his people before he judged the rebellious and the unrighteous. So I believe that in the rapture we'll be removed and then the last seven, okay, the the age of grace, the age of the church pretty much will be over with. Uh, The times of the Gentiles will be fulfilled. And that last Shabuah, that last 70 in Daniel chapter 9, I believe 25 to 26, that last seven years will start ticking again. And then the Jews will take center stage because the the largely Gentile church and Jews also will be removed and raptured out of the and we're going to it's going to be interesting. And when we get to the end times prophecy, I'll explain all that. It can be a little confusing, but I'll give you all the scripture references to back that up. But in verse 26, he says, then you will begin to say we ate and drank in your presence and you taught in our streets. Now, he's speaking about literally those people back then. He, he's, it's a wake up call to the people that are following him. Because they're going to say, Jesus, you, know, you were right here in, in, in my neighborhood. You know, what, what do you mean, I can't get in now? Uh, but also, it's to those who are somewhat familiar with Jesus but have no heart change. Because Jesus says to him, you. He, sp- he says, you will say. You will say. So there's, a, there's, a, there's certainly a, a, there's a personalness to what he's saying to them. So they were followers in some capacity. Again, a physical closeness to Jesus, but no change of heart. Beware of a closeness to God, and I said this before, and it's worth repeating. Beware of a closeness to the things of God with no heart change. The closeness could come in the form of your spouse. You, know, you could be married to, an, uh, you could be the spouse who really hasn't bought the whole Jesus thing, but your husband or your wife is, is Christian, uh, and you come to church, and you're, you're married, you're still married, and, and you like things the way they are. That closeness could, be, could come in the form of your children. Your children are saved. They're strong in the Lord. And, you you know, you still haven't bought the whole Christianity thing. Your parents, your church, you could, you know, it doesn't matter how many years. You you don't go up to the pearly gates and say, but I've been in the church 15 years. I mean, I put my time in. Don't you think I could get in now? It's not how it works. It's got to be a heart change, you know. So I'm I'm sure in every church across the world that when the rapture comes, there'll be a few people sitting in the seats still because there was no heart change there. In verse 27, he says, I never knew you. I never knew you. Now, he's not saying, Jesus isn't saying, I never knew you. You know, I I spoke to a lot of crowds. There were thousands of people. Were you sitting in the back? Because I don't remember your face. I just, it's not coming to me. What's your name again? That's not what he's saying. He's saying, I was never intimately acquainted with you. We were not ever of the same mind. You you never, you know, you're there for the food. You were there for the fellowship. You were there for the healings, but... Your body was healed, but your heart wasn't. That's what he means. I never knew you. And in verse 28, he says, there will be weeping and gnashing of teeth when you see Abraham and Isaac and Jacob and all the prophets in the kingdom of God and you yourselves thrust out. This applied specifically to the Jewish people of his day. They didn't automatically get in a seat. They didn't automatically get a seat in the kingdom because of their lineage. Uh, Weeping, gnashing of teeth is an expression of torment, Regret, sorrow, and remorse. The interesting thing is, this is another debate among Christians. Well, did, did Judas ever get into heaven? Well, the Bible said he was remorseful. The Bible said he was remorseful, but he wasn't repentant. There's a difference. The word repentance is used, and the word remorseful is used, and the are two different words. He was remorseful. He betrayed innocent blood. He probably felt bad about what he did. Instead of asking the Lord's forgiveness like Peter did, he went and hung himself. So, you know... Uh, there's there's going to be weeping and gnashing of teeth. It's not going to be a good thing. In verse 29, we just know people will come from the north and the south and the east and the west. This is a picture of Gentile inclusion. Ezekiel, uh, many scriptures, it's replete in the Old Testament. The prophets, uh, Genesis, you know, uh, it it says that the Gentiles will be included into the fold. Unfortunately, though, by Jesus' day, there was an ingrained prejudice, bigotry. It was a horrific thought to the religious leaders of his day that the gentiles could actually come into the fold. Okay? But he's telling them that, you know, obviously that's the case. And in verse 30, and indeed there are last who will be first and there are first who will be last. I like to use this in a group setting when food is served and people say to me, "Hey, why don't you go help yourself?" I'll say, "No, no, no, the last will be first." But that's not the way he's using it. The first will be last. Israel will will end up being last. Because of their rebellion and their unbelief and their rejection of the Messiah, uh, the Gentiles will come forward, and Israel will have her place. See, there's a, a thing called replacement theology, and uh, there's many denominations who are starting to buy into that. Oh, there's no use for the Jews anymore. Israel, God's done with them. He's cast them aside. That's not true. Uh, the Bible is very clear about eternal promises to His people, and we see in the uh, in Revelation that uh, the the 144,000, popular, popular uh, contrary to popular belief, they're not 144,000 Jehovah Witnesses because there's 12 tribes of Israel and they're each going to be set apart, 12,000 from each tribe, and they're going to be sealed with a mark, that will, God seal, that will not allow them to be harmed during all these uh, hor- horrific things. So Israel, the Jewish people, will, will be last in, in, the, in the end times. They're going to have prominence again and the last being first, the Gentiles. Gentiles were excluded. Uh, Many of them came into the fold. We talked about Rahab. We talked about uh, certain Gentiles who actually were in the line of the Messiah. Uh, Many of them who came into the fold, believed the monotheistic beliefs of the Jews. Uh, And they were, again, largely last because God gave them so much time to repent, and by and large, they didn't. Well, here things are gonna switch. Now they're gonna take forefront. Again, the church at large is largely Gentiles, not Jews. So there's a little switching in positions going on here. And the door shut too late. God's long-suffering again eventually expires. His patience is up. You know, time is up. We see it with the children of Israel. He he was long-suffering and long-suffering and long-suffering, and eventually he had to judge them. Okay? In the New Testament, again, we've said this before, eventually the age of grace, the church age runs out, and God starts to judge the earth with judgments. The seven seals, the seven bowls, and the seven trumpets. I have friends that uh, I've talked about the rapture with, you know, shared Christ, the whole thing, for for years. And I'm like, you know, one day the Lord's going to come back, 1 Thessalonians 4, and the whole thing about Jesus rapturing his church, the great Harpazu in the Greek. Uh, And people say to me, well, you know what? When you disappear and a whole bunch of people disappear, then I'm going to get moving. Great plan. Great plan. Uh, starvation. If you don't take the mark of the beast, you can't work, you can't eat. You have to live in the woods like a fugitive. And if they catch you, they'll cut your head off. The beheadings be in, in headings uh, in the book of Revelation. Hey, that's a great plan. I mean, it's better to stick with plan A, right? when should you come to the Lord now. But when dealing with the kingdom, don't delay because it may be too late. Too much pondering is not good. As a police officer, somebody who went to college for four years, I've taken multiple-choice tests. I've taken more stinking tests than I care to remember. And I don't want to take any more. I hope I'm done with that. But there was a study that was done that said when you take a test, especially multiple-choice, you read the question and you, you, you mark an answer. And nine times out of ten, your first answer is the right answer. It's when you start reading into the question and changing your answers that you mess it up. It's your first answer is the right answer. Let me apply that to here. If, you're, if God is moving your heart... To receive him, jump on it. Don't change your answer. It's not B or C. Stick with A, right? Too much vacillating. Get on the kingdom road and stay on the kingdom road. Uh, Many people ponder when the door will be shut. Again, that pondering. Well, when will the door be shut? The question you should be asking yourself is, am I in the door? That's the most appropriate question that you should be asking, not when is it going to be shut. If you're outside, get inside now. Hurry up. But the next section, Jesus mourns over Jerusalem. and We'll just cover that and then we'll just, uh, we'll close. But uh, verse 31, Jesus, it says, On that very day, some Pharisees came saying to him, Get out and depart from here, for Herod wants to kill you. Now, Herod, we spoke about this before, Herod Antipas, uh, he's the one who beheaded John the Baptist, had him beheaded. Not a very nice guy. Um, and if you've been a student of the Bible for any time, you'll see that the Pharisees are the bad guys. You know, if you want to, every, We always got to put a villain somewhere. So if you look at the Bible, the Pharisees are the villains. You know, Those darn Pharisees, I would have told them something if I was back then, right? But some notable Pharisees in Scripture, Nicodemus, Joseph of Arimathea, and Gamaliel, to name a few. And the fact that the trial against Jesus was held at night, and I, I can't imagine that they got a quorum of, of, of people they got their own specific people from the Pharisees to help condemn them, him, Jesus, and it went very quickly through the morning to his Pilate, the whole thing. Let's do this quickly. Let's get rid of him. So the fact that they not necessarily got a quorum and the fact that they started doing this at night, getting their certain people to vote with them, shows that there probably was a lot of good Pharisees. Or some of them were good. Some of the Pharisees wanted to kill Jesus, as we see, but... Here we see that there's a group of Pharisees trying to keep him from getting killed. I think the lesson here is, it's a good lesson on stereotyping. You know, we, we like to marginalize groups of people. You marginalize a group of people and you say, they're all bad. Whether it's a political affiliation or a religious affiliation or whatever it is or a lifestyle, we marginalize them and then we, we get rid of them. And you know what? Christians are very guilty of that. So I would say, good lesson on stereotyping, don't do it. It's not fair. It's not fair. Some people believe that uh, these religious leaders at the time had bad motives, that they were saying to Jesus, Herod wants to kill you. Get out of here. Go to Jerusalem, you know, so they could keep an eye on him. I I reject that. I mean, people have their opinions. I reject that because Herod did really want to kill Jesus. And uh, Jesus didn't disagree with them. But he said, look, I'm going to do my work regardless of Herod's murderous threat. So uh, I believe that Herod did want to kill Jesus. And if these Pharisees really had bad uh, intentions, they wouldn't have said anything to Jesus. They just would have went to Herod and said, "He's, he's there in that village, go get him. So I really think that these guys were probably somewhat decent. But what's really important is how Jesus responds. Verse 32. And he said to them, go tell that fox... Behold, I cast out demons and perform cures today and tomorrow, and the third day I shall be perfected. Nevertheless, I must journey today, tomorrow, and the day following, for it cannot be that a prophet should perish outside of Jerusalem. O Jerusalem, Jerusalem, the one who kills the prophets and stones those who are sent to her. How often I wanted to gather your children together as a hen gathers her brood under her wings, but you were not willing. So he says, he calls Herod a fox. Obviously, this isn't a compliment. Foxes hunt live prey. They hunt nocturnally. They sneak around in the dark and they're known for their cunning. So even back then, calling somebody a fox wasn't necessarily a good thing. Uh, Jesus is basically saying here that he can't be sidetracked with concerns about what's going to happen. He's got a job to do and he will do it, notwithstanding Herod's threats. Now, What's very, what's really cool is how you could see and different men of God throughout the, the centuries, prophets, whatever, how they reacted to the call of God and threats against them. Let's take Elijah. Elijah was a great prophet. You know, 400 prophets of Baal were were decimated on the uh, Mount Carmel, right? And you know, he's he's doing great, and and God does an, a miraculous work, and uh, you know, he's victorious. And he comes down from the mountain and he finds out Queen Jezebel wants to kill you. Oh, Queen Jezebel wants to kill me. Choom! He takes off. Right? He runs as far as he could and he's depressed. For you know, he just laying there. He doesn't want to do anything. and The Lord's got to minister him. And he's like, he goes, Elijah, what are you doing here? Go back over there. I got seven thousand seven thousand eleven bowed to need to bow. Now look at the difference with Jesus. Jesus, you know, he's had a lot of abuse in his life, for lack of a better word. And uh, Herod is breathing murderous threats on him. Some of the Pharisees want to kill him. What does Jesus do? Oh, I'm panicking. What am I going to do? He just continues to do what God has told him to do. Now, again, I'm not saying anything bad about Elijah. I might I have run too. <laughs> so uh, it's just cool to see Jesus' uh, response to his perfect response to everything in, in, in life. right? But he won't be sidetracked or, or distracted by fears or concerns. Is that us? Or do we allow things or people to get in the way of our serving him? Are we steadfast and immovable when God calls us? We all have our down moments, but in general, do we, you know, God has called us to do something. Everyone here has a calling on their lives. Are we following that call? Are we moving in that direction? Are we sidetracked? Are we thrown off the path by, uh, you know, threats or or harassment or, you know, feeling insecure or whatever it is? I just would submit to you, if God has shown you a path to take in your life, take the path right? Also, he says, on the third day, I will be perfected. Herod did not have the power to disrupt the eternal calendar. Jesus was going to the cross. He was going to Jerusalem. He was going to be crucified. He was going to die as an atoning sacrifice for the sins of the people. On the third day, he would rise again and nothing was going to stop him or get in his way. So the third day perfection, I believe, is the resurrection. Jesus also said about his own body, Destroy this temple, and in three days I will rebuild it." And in verse 33, uh, he says that it cannot be that a prophet should perish outside of Jerusalem. I want to take you to Second Chronicles, the, uh, the historical books in the Old Testament. Second Chronicles 36, starting with verse 14. Second Chronicles 36. It says, Moreover, all of the leaders of the priests and the people transgressed more and more, according to all the abominations of the nations, and defiled the house of the Lord which he had consecrated in Jerusalem. And the Lord God of their fathers sent warnings to them by his messengers, rising up early and sending them, because he had compassion on his people and on his dwelling place. But they mocked the messages of God despised his words and scoffed at his prophets until the wrath of the Lord arose against his people until there was no remedy. That's frightening, until there was no remedy. Imagine getting to the point where there's no remedy and God just says, you know what? I've got to do what I've got to do. You leave me no choice. Again, it was the people. It wasn't God because he was mean. You know, people have this misconception that God's a mean God in the Old Testament. But you know what? He gave them so many chances and he just, they just totally polluted his, his, uh, his blessings on the nation. They polluted his place of worship. They had, the way the temple was built, it was like, they would call them precincts. They were side rooms and there were tunnels and there was underground. There was all kinds of labyrinths inside the temple. And uh, in Ezekiel, if you read the book of Ezekiel, God gives Ezekiel the vision about what was going on in each of those precincts. It was like a little room, like we had a church and there was a bunch of little hidden rooms and people would worship idols and have pornographical paintings and it just was bizarre and god was like this is in my house that they're doing this and he gave them so many chances but you know what is it any different today i mean look around look what happens in the name of of church or in the name of christianity there's just some bizarre stuff going on and there's just blatant sin that people are accepting they just they're just accepting it so uh, I, i just don't know if things are much different but that scripture there gives you a good understanding of the mood of the people and the contempt for God's messengers. Verse 34, or I'm sorry, 35, the last verse. It says, See, your house is left to you desolate. And assuredly, I say to you, you shall not see me until the time comes when you say, Blessed is he who comes in the name of the Lord. So, you know, he, he speaks about, again, in, in the verse before, about wanting to gather the children together as a hen gathers her brood under her wings, Right? There was a a story, and I'm sure it was a true story, and I'm sure there's many stories like this. Uh, There was a barn fire. Not a bonfire, a barn fire. I know I speak funny sometimes. Uh, And, you know, how many barn fires were there over the centuries? Probably many. But a person tells a story about a fire in a barn, and uh, the chickens were trapped. They couldn't get out. And there was this one hen, this female chicken, who... Obviously, must have because of the heat and the, the danger. She she had her chicks under her, and she got them close to her, and you know brought them close. And then she outspread her wings and she hunkered down while the fire was burning. The next day, when they you know or that day when they put out the fire, they saw the chick, the the, the hen, and she was stiff and charred and she was dead, obviously. And they picked her up, and when they picked her up, they found the little chickens were alive underneath the hen. Isn't that amazing? Her wings were just enough, and her body was just enough to insulate the little chicks from that destructive fire. I tell you, it's just a story about a hen, but I tell you, it almost brought tears to my eyes when I listened to it, because I think of Jesus here, you know, it's his desire to, you know, he's brooding over the fact that he wants to spare them, spare Jerusalem, if they would just embrace him as the Messiah, but because of their rejection, he has to lead them to their own demise, You know, what about us as individuals like that hen Jesus wants to take all of us, you know, all of humanity and just, you know, wrap his wings around us figuratively and protect us from the flames of hell. That's what he came here for. And his 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 sadness and his disappointment and his heartbreak is that you don't understand people. I came here to do this for you and you don't want me to. You want to go scurrying around while that barn's burning down. And, and, you know, you you know, you know, it's coming. You're going to die. So, uh, you know, that's, that's Jesus' heart there. And in verse 35, he speaks about your house is left desolate. The house. It was, the house was the nation of Israel. They squandered God's blessings as a nation. The northern kingdom was judged. The southern kingdom was judged. You know, the temple was rebuilt. The Shekinah glory, God's physical presence, once it departed after the first temple, there's no recording that the Shekinah glory came back. Uh, You know, his last bastion of his remembrance and his holiness, the temple, was was polluted too. And, you know, he had no choice but to allow the destruction of 70 AD uh, and the subsequent dispersion. So the house was left desolate. And I, I want to read one more scripture, Psalm 18, 25 through 26. Psalm 18, 25 through 26. It says, save now, I pray, O Lord. And that's where that word Hosanna comes from. Hosanna means save now, Lord, I beseech thee, in a sense. O Lord, I pray, send now prosperity. Blessed is he who comes in the name of the Lord. We have blessed you from the house of the Lord. So this is, uh, this scripture here, blessed is he who comes in the name of the Lord, is a messianic scripture. And It's said to Jesus at the triumphal entry, I believe it's Luke chapter 19, when he comes and he rides into Jerusalem, people throw the palm branches in front of him, Hosanna, Hosanna, blessed is he who comes in the name of the Lord. And also, uh, it further applies in the second coming, the victorious entry, the physical entry. Um, The triumphal entry was, was designated and it was a symbol to save their souls. They were expecting a great military leader. They were expecting the great Messiah to come in and trample Rome. Jesus came in lowly, riding on a donkey uh, of, of no reputation. But that save now was for their souls. That was for to lead people to the kingdom of heaven. But there will be a second application, the second coming, where he rides in triumphantly. There's not going to be any more crucifixions. He's going to stop the wars. He's going to... Uh, decimate the opposition, and in a physical sense, there'll be a righteous rule, okay? So there's there's two meanings to that. Well, Israel blew blew it, in a sense, and the church was left desolate. But the church shouldn't rest, and I say uh, the church, in a sense, the ecclesia, the church throughout the world, should not rest on its uh, perceived laurels. The church also had an opportunity and is blowing it, so much so that uh, there's a brother that I know who is following a guy on the radio who says that you shouldn't go to church anymore because from his reading of scripture, and he set dates which totally discounts him as somebody viable anyway, uh, he said that the church is all apostate based on numbers and and certain scriptures, uh, that it's all all poor teaching and you should now just go to home groups. But incidentally, he was kicked out of a church and he has a home group, so it kind of benefits him. It's amazing what people do with their presuppositions, right? How it'll, it'll affect their doctrine. Uh, so you know what, you can't blame people for following this guy because I know people who have visited churches and people say, where can I find the church where they just read from the Bible? I don't want to hear about current events. I don't want to hear about this or that. I want to hear about the Bible. That's what I come to church for. And it's very, it's coming, becoming harder and harder to find that. So the church is blowing it wholesale. Uh, but instead of brooding over spilt milk, so to speak, where are you? You know, where are you? Are you on the kingdom road? Because narrow is the way and few who find it. And maybe it's time to get into the door before the door is shut and it's too late. It's clear from Scripture that God is patient, but He won't wait forever. Let's pray. The people who have visited church.